obsess about your product till you can't obsess about it anymore than you already are. Fight distraction every step of the way. Have iron discipline around your focus and just obsess the hell about your product. Welcome back to B2B as CEO. Over the next few months, some of the episodes of the podcast will feature the very best discussions from FC Build, our recent enterprise conference that included interviews with 50 CEOs and executives. On this episode, my partner Joanne Chen chats with Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman, a veteran CEO. Frank took Data Domain and ServiceNow public before setting a record for the largest software IPO with Snowflake. In this conversation, Joanne and Frank talk about performance culture, setting goals, and the data landscape. I'm super excited to be with Frank Sluman today. Frank needs no introduction. It's hard enough to take one company public. Frank has done it three times. Data Domain, ServiceNow, and of course, most recently, Snowflake, uh, which is, I think, the biggest software IPO ever. So first of all, a very well-deserved congratulations. How does it feel, Frank? Thank you. I I think we were overtaken today by Airbnb, which is actually fine by me because I I don't need that notoriety every day. That's great. Well, maybe we can start just a little bit about, you know, your background and what attracted you to lead Snowflake in the first place. Yeah, you know, I stepped down from my role at ServiceNow in 2017 and uh, had zero plans or intentions to sort of come back into the arena. I never really decided to sort of sort of go back or talk to anybody. Uh, I just kind of fell into it. My wife's still wondering what the hell happened a year and a half later here. But I, I just, uh, I knew the people and uh, I was mesmerized by the product. I was mesmerized by the opportunity because I started out my career in software in the late 80s in a uh, time-sharing company running on mainframes and people that were uh, running multidimensional databases, which is sort of the beginning you know, of analytical data processing. So, you know, we find ourselves sort of late years ahead now in terms of our ability to do these things. So uh, it's... Uh, full circle here in a way. So I'm super excited by the company. I think it's a special company. I think it's an important company as well because we're in a whole new world with these uh, these large public cloud platforms and how companies are, you know, surviving and thriving uh, in that environment. So, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of the tip of the spear here. Absolutely. And you guys start off more contrarian and now you are, you are dominating the world of, of data warehousing. Um, Before we go into kind of the data infrastructure and data space, I want to focus the conversation on leadership and growing organizations because most of our audience here are early stage founders who want to learn from you and hopefully make one or two fewer mistakes. And I recently read one of your essays about performance culture, which was really, really uh, enjoyable. So I'm going to quote a couple sentences and we can dive into that. I think you said our companies were built and run for performance full stop. We were single-minded in our pursuit of goals and drove our people to become the best version of themselves. Our companies were all Marine Corp, not much Peace Corp. So let's let's start there. That's a very strong statement. Um, I want to talk about your philosophy 
for organizational design and culture. Let's maybe let's start with that. Um, after running three companies, uh, maybe give us a bit of an overview of your philosophy. Yeah, so that was actually a good extra because it sort of goes after the heart of everything, which is a single-minded pursuit of developing and delivering on the potential that we've been given. You know, what, what does that mean? It means, you know, you you crank up the focus until you can't crank it up anymore. Uh, you fight every form of distraction. You get after it with, with everything you have, every ounce of energy and drive and ambition and you bring everybody along uh, in that process. You know, we're, we're very malcontented. This kind of a word that means that we're never happy with anything. We always see the room up where there's people that are not very happy with the status quo ever. Uh, we're not celebrators. That might not be a good attribute, but it's sort of like, yeah, we, we'll celebrate for five minutes after the end of a good quarter. And then we're kind of back to being scared and anxious again about the next quarter. So we're, we're in this you know, hyper-anxious, paranoid mode. And uh, people are surprised to hear me say that. They're like, seriously, you still get anxious after all this time? Actually, I'm as anxious now as I was 20 years ago. It never goes away. I feel an enormous burden to deliver you know, on behalf of all the, uh, the stakeholders and all the constituents and all the people that count on me do the absolute best we possibly uh, can. In that process, you know, I mean, we're, we're not very focused on topics or projects that you know have no line of sight to the core mission right so you know we're very oriented towards the drivetrain of the business we're very non-incremental in the sense that you know we have big bold visions for ourselves and we try to work back from our future view to the presence and what we have to do in the current time frame to start advancing towards that so it's not easy to work, you know, with us. That's why culturally we need to be very, uh, you know, like-minded because this is not, uh, you know, the high-minded pontificating type of environment. We're a hard-fighting group. We know big companies are trying to kill us every single day of the week. They take serious exception to our existence, and uh, we're very, very mindful of that. So it sounds like some of the, the main tenants are this urgency, this paranoia, and being a very strong you know, performance culture where you're always afraid of competition. So let's talk about kind of the people side of this. And you're known to hire and recruit very talented and performance-driven leaders. Uh, can you share some of the ways that you hire executives? What attributes do you look for? Yeah. What questions do you ask? Well, I try to hire for aptitude, not so much experience. Uh, this is a very important concept. I always find it amazing that in interviews, uh, people never ask me, you know, what, what do you think your, your innate talents are, your God-given abilities? In other words, what's your center of gravity? That's my first question in every interview. What is your center of gravity? You know, what do you, what do you feel you're exceptionally good at? Because everybody has those things. I and mean, the inverse of that is, you know, what, what, are you not, <laughs> what are you not good at, right? But the reason is I can give people experience, but I can't give you aptitude because you come with aptitude. And experience is easy. And by the way, that also lets us hire people ahead of their own curve. Because if we understand aptitude really well, then we will get you to uh, where you need to be. That's a competitive advantage, you know, when you hire. How do you test for aptitude during the interview process? Well, obviously, you know, in engineering, right? And the engineering organizations are legendary for, <laughs> for mm -hmm. put them in front of the whiteboard. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll drive that out uh, in a hurry, you know, how fast they can produce code and solve problems. And, all of that sort. But, you know, we, we assess it not just in interviews. I was interviews is like 10% of the process. It's really 
you know, I, I often ask people, what do other people say about you, your superiors, your subordinates, and your peers? And then we go and find out what they really say, you know, because that's, it's just work to, to really understand people. Uh, it's sort of the, other than experience and attitude, the third uh, vector is behavior. It's culture. It's just sort of, I mean, I love to hire people that have a chip on their shoulder that have a lot to prove. They just can't help it. You know, whatever, you know, terrible childhood they had, they just, they just need to prove things to themselves in the world. And uh, I, I love to bet on people that have that innate hunger and drive. And uh, I'm that person myself, by the way. So I tend to recognize it in people and like that in people, even though for some it's kind of a turn off or a put off. No, it's not to me. I just love people like that. We also look for this uh, quite a bit when we're thinking about which companies to invest in. Does someone have a growth mindset, right? Because a company that's 10 person versus 100 versus 1,000, and we'll talk about kind of the journey from founder to CEO later, but that really requires an ability to learn and want to succeed uh, while changing yourself. How about on the firing side? I mean, this is one topic that, again, I think especially younger first-time founders struggle with, which is, hey, I have this executive who, you know, is, is okay and, and is, you know, I, I have nothing else to compare it to. How do I decide when to pull the trigger or not? Super easy, okay. The way I always know how people are doing or not doing is through the peer group, right? It's not my interaction and my exposure to people. All I do is check in with the peer group, and I do that constantly, you know, every week, all the time. We also do formal calibrations as well. Calibrations, we, that means we're doing it across the organization, not just through the peer group. If the peer group, you know, is having real struggles with somebody across the board, you come to the end of the road, okay? There's nothing you can do uh, at that point. If you have a strong culture, people are either embraced or they're repulsed. And if they're repulsed, then you have your answer. We're at the end of the road and um, there's no middle ground. Only weak companies have middle grounds where they, people can exist even though they're really not in good standing. That's sort of what I call B player land. That's what you see in, in large companies that are failing. Right, the, the cultures are so weak that they no longer have that black and white either embrace people because they're viewed as assets, uh, and the organization wants them. So it's actually it becomes incredibly apparent very very quickly. Uh, quite honestly, it's a matter of weeks. It's not like you have to wait for a year. It becomes apparent very quickly. Most of our uh, sessions we've talked about this topic quite a bit, and I think most CEOs oftentimes reflect back and think, "I've never regretted moving too fast on that front." Uh, I've only moved too slowly uh, in my career, and uh, I'm a pretty fast mover. As I got older and I've been through many companies, I get faster and faster and faster because I no longer hesitate. And it's, I still have never had a situation where it was too soon. There is no such thing as too soon, you know. And there's also, you know, we cut the tie by saying, look, when there's doubt, there's no doubt, you know, and it's a good saying, right? There's doubt, you have a problem. Right? Just because there's doubt, is that, that's a problem in and of itself. And if you have to uh, break a tie, that's what breaks the tie. Right? I, I love the fact that you know, Steve Jobs used to say, you know, needs to be insanely great or, or I have no interest or desire. Right? So he, he didn't allow for that middle ground to exist. Right? And the same thing with people. I ask people, would you hire this person again? You have your answer. Right? It's hard for people to confront situations and people because it's just not fun and it's just naturally not something that we want to do. But as leaders, we have to, right? Because otherwise we hold the whole company hostage to, to mediocrity. So we have to force ourselves to move. The whole organization is watching us. They're not just watching what we're doing. They're watching what we're not doing, right? 
So your own leadership brand is big time at stake as well. The harder and faster you move, the more people will get the message, what the expectation really is. Oh, going back to the sense of urgency and velocity, you have a very you know high performance culture. I mean, what are some of the tactical things that you've done to drive the sense of urgency or velocity in your organizations? Are there KPIs or goals? How often do you set goals? Maybe t- tell us a little bit more about that. So humans are naturally prone to sort of moving at a glacial pace if you let them. If you go to the local DMV and you'll, you'll see what I mean. So what leaders do is they set pace and tempo. And by the way, almost any place I've ever been, there's always room up in pace and tempo. Because people just naturally don't move that quickly and they can't move much quicker than what they're actually doing. So really tactically, I always compress time frames. You know, somebody says six months, I'm like, six months, man, I might be dead. You know, I, I can't even think that far out. Okay. How about six weeks? In other words, think orders of magnitude different, not 20%, because that doesn't move any dials. People say, can I come back to you next week? How about tomorrow afternoon? Because you know, people are trying to always sort of elongate time frames, and I'm doing the exact opposite, right? And, and by the way, what's the risk here, right? Maybe I'm a little bit premature. What's the worst that can happen? You know, I'll set another time, okay? But this constant driving for pace and tempo, what it also does is it, it just drives the urgency and, and the, the energy level and the uh, the intensity level of the organization, which is really what you want. I mean, organizations that are slow, they just, they just suck the life out of everything, right? After all, everybody wants to go home and do something else, right? So pace is a really sort of important core concept. It's not just that speed is good, it's, it's that speed is energized. It's electrifying, right? The whole, the whole place starts to get momentum now and they get things done and they're operating more in sequence than in parallel because that's my other big beef is that people have way too many priorities. That's actually a contradiction in terms. You know, priorities should be a singular term, not a plural one. So it's all about creating clarity, creating focus, creating tempo. It's the same sort of mental, intellectual laziness where, you know, we don't drive ourselves to higher quality outcomes because, well, that's good enough. I just want to get it off my desk. I want to check the box, move on to the next thing. But instead, you know, just to stop and say, look, you know, we're not excited about this. Let's just reset and reboot and come back tomorrow. And we do it with the simplest, stupidest things. I mean, somebody, you know, last week showed me a T-shirt for some event that we had. I think it was our anniversary or whatever for the company. And, you know, and they wanted to know what I thought of the T-shirt. And I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't say what I thought of it. I just said, do you like it? And, you know, the person said, it's kind of okay. And I'm like, well, I think we got the answer, right? Let, let's be excited about it, right? If, if you propose something, right, or you present something, I mean, you, you should be thrilled beyond bits, you know, about what you're talking about. If it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You know, you're, you're, you're not in the right place. And it, it's just, there's not, it doesn't take that much more mental energy to drive up the quality. It's just a mindset thing and the, I've often said, you know, in, in professional sports, you see the difference in attitude and mindset. You split second, the higher energy, you know, at a faster, more aggressive pace, and it, it just gets the better of people, right? And you, you want to build it in your organization. You want that, that high energy, intense, urgent mentality. Uh, and then you mentioned the other part, which is a focus on focus, right? Don't do too many things. Don't have too many priorities, Let's just focus on one or two things, especially those that you're very passionate about and have high excitement and energy for. Um, one of the things that we advise our portfolio companies is to have one or two KPIs 
for the whole entire company, right? And that way everyone's aligned and there is this singular focus. What have you done in terms of setting those goals? Have you used yeah. a, a North Star or KPI as a driving force? Yeah, we, that, that, that's exactly what we did when, when I was at ServiceNow. I mean, we're, we ran the whole company on, on that new ACV. That, that for SaaS companies, that's the purest metric that there is because it incorporates attrition, upsells, and then a new account. So it's a very, very pure metric. Um, I wasn't to fight my board on it because they like ideas like balanced scorecards, but I think it's the stupidest idea ever invented. Um, you know, we don't want balanced scorecards. You know, we, we want hyper-focus uh, on what moves dials. And in a SaaS company, it, it's net new ACV. Worked extremely well for a long time, obviously. Um, but, you know, for example, it's not like we're a consumption company, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we run the whole company on consumption. It's a very, very simple concept. By the way, consumption equals revenue, right? So we're, we're, we're a super transparent enterprise. When you look at our revenue, that equals our consumption for the period, right? So it is hard to get confused about what you're supposed to do here, right? Um, it's so simple, but I, I, don't say, I don't say two. I say one, okay? One is better than two. And how do you, with one KPI, how do you design incentives or co compensation plans to align to that? Well, I mean, this is one of the challenges that, that we had at ServiceNow. We were paying people on bookings, whereas the company was, was run on, on revenue consumption. So in other words, the sales effort had no relationship to the company's revenue. Well, that is insane, right? Um, so, you know, you, you, in sales organizations, you got to be careful that, that you don't, you know, become so disruptive. You don't, you don't sell anything anymore. But we are gradually moving people to, you know, to consumption rather than bookings because consumption also drives bookings in our world. That may sound counterintuitive, but it does because when people burn through their, uh, their their credits, they have to reorder. Okay, so if you do well in consumption, bookings will follow. I guarantee it. You know, so having that alignment in your organization uh, is, is is super important. It, it's so strong now that we look at everything. You know, uh, we 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 stack rank our partners in terms of who's driving the highest consumption. So we sit down a partner and I'm like, well, here, here's your ranking on consumption. You know, you're ranking whatever number and uh, you, you want to move up with us. You got to move up your consumption. So everybody is getting in the game now, fully, fully aligned on what we need to do. So alignment is a very important word, very important word. I mean, having the single metric power, but now you need to bring your whole organization in alignment to it, as opposed to allowing people to deviate from that focus. It may be related to this and, and, and alignment is, is super important, especially with compensation. I think one of the audience members asked about you know, customer service and support. Uh, maybe could you describe in relation to what we just talked about? Uh, what is a way that you may have compensated customer support? Maybe your philosophy on that specific function? Yeah. So, well, one of the things I, I have always done every single time is I've moved customer support uh, into the engineering organization because, you know, engineering is always the backstop of support and engineering has to get involved with support. They also need to become extremely sensitized to what, what life is like in the support organization and what kind of issues they're dealing with, right? Because a lot of those support can't solve. They can only deal with them and cope with them. But engineering can actually solve them, right? Back to alignment. Right. So uh, those are very easy things to do. But when you have sport organizations that are hanging out there by themselves, uh, that that's definitely, uh, you know, not a good scenario. Um, you know, support obviously has, you know, they, they do surveys, you know, on closing tickets and all this kind of stuff. And we have our, our NPS surveys. We do all of those things because it, it's not so much our NPS scores. 
uh, that we're interested in. We're interested in the narratives that, that, that come with that. And we literally read that, study that, discuss that, follow up with customers. We're very aggressive chasing down, you know, any evidence that the organization, you know, is, is failing or not living up to expectations. We need people to sing our praises. And if they're not, you know, we, we need to, you know, we need to get better. And, and the energy around um, velocity and urgency within the organization, are you mirroring that outside? How do you use the same kind of energy to influence your customers uh, and drive them with the same kind of internal speed as you're driving your executives, employees? Well, I, I, I do do this with customers as well. You know, when, you know, I, in other words, they can always go faster, right? And they have their own politics and, and just in general inertia in their organizations because they're big companies. And it's like, look, we can go faster, right? And because we're consumption-based, speed is kind of important to us, okay? Because the sooner they start consuming, the sooner we start recognizing revenue, right? So it's not a small matter, you know, for, and, and by the way, you know, we, we apply the resources, you know, professional services and training, you know, very, very tight project planning because, you know, in our world, you know, we do database migrations and, and things of that sort of that are quite time consuming and they have to happen, you know, before we start uh, seeing consumption uh, and revenue. So it's, we have to, you know, drive our customers as well. It's not always easy. You know, it's just part of the natural friction that ex- and inertia that exists in our business. And COVID has been, I mean, related to what, what you're talking about, COVID has been has been great for many companies, uh, including Snowflake, right? Some of there's there's this inertia and, and catalyst in some ways for many of your customers. Um, let's talk about that just a little bit. Have, how have you adjusted strategy, right? planning, uh, investments in different areas? Tell us a bit about about that um, in the last uh, in the last 12 months. I, I think COVID on the whole has been sort of a, a net neutral. It has had pluses and minuses uh, for us. The minuses were, of course, industries that just shut down, like travel and aviation and all sure. that. I mean, that, that. That affects us just like anybody else. Um, but there's also it's also been a catalyst for, for a lot of data initiatives uh, in enterprises because people can't make sense of their worlds anymore. And uh, so people have become, they have accelerated their agendas on becoming far more data analytic and data driven in their uh, operations and that has that has helped us i mean we we've gone up in priority if you uh, if you will in terms of how we responded to it i i, I kept everything i'm obviously you know we're, we're completely 100 percent cloud company we have zero on-premise uh equipment first company i've had actually had zero on-premise um so we we, we just walked away and, and and we just continued operating we've done absolutely everything that, that we would have or could have um um you know, you know pre-pandemic uh, as well as during the only thing uh, in, in the early days of April and March, um, we started to prioritize what, what I call drivetrain positions above uh, roles that were uh, farther removed from the drivetrain. So the drivetrain is everything that, that obviously that produces revenue, and there's a lot of roles in direct support of it, and those roles are farther removed from it. So you know we, we went through a reprioritization. Maybe for a couple of months, but you know we've got I think a high five six hundred people uh, during the pandemic. People <laughs> that have never seen the Snowflake office, so we for the most part we we have completely kept it up. We have maybe lightly tapped the brakes in a few areas, but but not really. And we kept our plans. We didn't you know we didn't replan. Uh, we do obviously we forecast every quarter, but we didn't replan. I don't want any excuses. I mean, the moment you start entertaining. Oh, you know, there's a crisis going on. And it's so bad, and all these things are going on. You just talk yourself into, you know, non-performance. And, and my attitude is, like, we're going to pretend like it doesn't even exist. Okay, 
and we're, we're, we're going to do what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to make mental excuses uh, to each other and, and ourselves. Very important. This, this ties back to what you were talking before, which is, you know, to, to have a high performance culture and, and company, the, the focus on priorities, urgency, velocity, and have a performance driven culture amongst your executives. And that which trickles down to every single aspect of the company is, is super critical. So, yeah, so let's. That's right. And the, the leaders, you know, they, they just inject that energy uh, and, and that pace, right? It comes, the leadership has a very important role uh, to play not every day, every hour, every meeting, every encounter, right? So remember that, right? It's not a poster on the wall, it's you, you, are, you are the energizer bunny, you know? Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, another another topic that's very near and dear, which is, you know, many first time founders are trying to make the transition from being a founder, right, which is kind of the 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 initial creation of a product, getting the first set of people to work on this to a CEO, which is, you know, someone who's a business owner and driving business outcomes. Um, And that's a hard transition. Some people make it. Some people don't. I love to talk about that with you for 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 a little bit. Um, and one of the hard things I think for founders, first time founders, especially is to delegate, right? At what point do you delegate? At what point do you still keep things close to your chest while maintaining accountability? How do you stay hands on? When do you, when do you let go? You know, I know you were, um, running data domain from the very, very beginning all the way, you know, to its exit. Could you share some of the learnings there, especially around this topic? Yeah. You know, just my own exposure to, uh, to all kinds of early stage companies, you know, one of the, the mistakes I see over and over again, um, you know, with really young CEOs uh, that haven't had really any prior experiences, that they hire people and then they sort of sit back and wait for things to happen, and, uh, because they don't know any better, right? Well, I mean, how, how do you, you know? There's no, there's no place to learn, you know, to be a CEO. They're like, well, I hired this VP of sales. Now the VP of sales is kind of, kind of has to do it. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I, I will tell you that that's going to be a, the recipe for disaster, and it is every time. By the way, I mean I've, I've watched it over and over again, and I'm I'm like, what are you even thinking, right? Because we're we're interrogating the relationship and the activity all the time, right? Every single encounter, we have our weekly check-ins. So in other words, it's not like you know I'm, I'm delegating and I'm stepping back and I'm letting the person do you know its thing. Right? You know, we're, we're all over it. It, it. it is an active exchange and cooperation, collaboration. You're driving. You're not presiding, right? I mean, how do you know that this person is actually ramping in the way you would expect? Are the activity levels there? What are other people saying, right? So you're staying very close to it, even though, you know, you're certainly empowering people, because it doesn't mean you're just sort of waiting for the results to come in, Right. So the word presiding is the worst word I can possibly think of, right? I mean, you're you're a driver. You're you're all over it, and uh, that 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 should be your normal mode. You know, certainly in in, in my way of doing things. I, I, I like I like this distinction that you're making: presiding versus versus driving. Yeah. At the same time, you want to embolden your execs, right, and have make sure they have accountability and they feel like they have ownership. You know, what are what are some of the things that founders can do to to do that as well while staying in the driver's seat? Yeah, and one of the things that, that I often emphasize in the relationships that I want to have with my people, I want them, you know, to push me, you know, out of my envelope, okay? In other words, I want them to be more aggressive with me than I am with them, right? That's the correct uh, relationship. If I have to kick and scream them up the hill, you know, we don't have the right relationship, right? If I say no 10 times a day, we do have the right relationship, right? 
So you you want people that are first of all they're 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 very confident, and secure themselves, so that they're not afraid of me, and you know they they have the the, the power of their conviction and they're going to act it out. That's really what we're looking for. We don't want timid people. Um, you remember when uh, you know our first company was acquired by EMC when I and, and I was at EMC for a year and a half, running one of their divisions, and uh, and I inherited all kinds of people there. And they would come to me and ask me what they should be doing. And I was like, <laughs> I've never had people come to me, ask me what they should be doing. <laughs> um, what are some of the other skills that you think, you know, founders just think about in terms of developing as they make that transition? You know, one is obviously the relationship of how do you hire and, and embolden executives? How much should you stay in the driver's seat versus quote unquote preside, which is, you know, never. What are some of the other learnings that, um, that, that folks should keep in mind? Develop very high clarity of mind. Okay, I cannot tell you how important it is to have high clarity in your own mind. You know about what you're doing, what you're not doing, why you're doing it, and you can articulate it over and over again in the strongest terms. Because if there's confusion in your head or you're not able to articulate it very well, by the time you get a couple of layers down, there's mass confusion. Okay, and then the energy is is going in every direction. People are basically freelancing now. You know, running their own show. Um, so you, you gotta be so clear and aggressive in articulating, uh, you know, what you want and then reinforce that at every turn because organizations, they just fritter away their energy. Okay. Because they're humans. Okay. And you ever seen five-year-olds playing soccer and it's like a huddle moving across the field, nobody playing position, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's what you get, right? How do you think that's going to go? Right. This is no longer, you know, a, a lethal army. Um, and the second thing is, it goes hand in hand, you need to develop high conviction, right? Um, because when you're interacting with people and you're wishy-washy, you know, about what you're doing, what you're saying, what's important, what's not important, yeah, pretty soon, the organization is just like swimming in glue and people acting out and pursuing their own, uh, their own priorities. And conviction is, is not easy. I mean, you have to work really hard to develop conviction because you know sometimes you just don't have it and you need to get it right so what do you do right and conviction around hiring people um anytime that you know we're hiring people and we're constantly hiring people you know that I, I always watch for how much conviction my team has you know they're wildly excited about somebody that's great if i if i detect any level of indifference i'm, I'm, I'm like okay i want to unpack this now okay well, what, why why are we why is this Right. You cannot lack conviction. Can't. I think having, you know, what you, we talked about, which is, you know, having a very clear story and message and then high conviction are, are especially important. Now, on the conviction side, it, it varies depending on how situations are, how the company is performing, especially for, for a young founder when things are not going as well. How do you develop and keep that conviction as yeah. an entrepreneur? Well, there, there's another term that, that I'll, I'll throw out to you, and that's intellectual honesty, okay? Um, what, what that means is the ability to see things as they really are versus, you know, narratives that, that may be pleasing or preferred or politically desirable or whatever it is. And, you know, people, human nature is just, you know, we have all kinds of reasons to be dishonest about, you know, what, what's going on in organizations, especially when things aren't going well. Right. Um, I, I find it's very I, I've seen businesses not doing well and people are not willing to really, really, you know, inspect what is going on and come to really, really the real conclusions. 
they'd rather come to conclusions that they you know can talk to their partnership about they can talk to their board about anything that's that's passable or palatable and i'm like forget it you know you need to learn intellectual honesty call it as it is because you know this is i, I often use the example of medicine right you know doctors spend all their time diagnosing the problem right and the reason is you know it's hard to diagnose problems first of all you got to eliminate causes and do all these tests and on and on and on. But once once they're certain about what what the diagnosis is, the therapy is easy. You know, they they already know uh, what that is. So so the, the, all the work goes on to, to the diagnostic side. In business, it's the opposite. We jump to conclusions, and we have our favorite narratives, right? And uh, so, in other words, we don't spend any time on on really being intellectually honest about what we're looking at. We spend all our time on you know. What are the therapies, the programs, the actions, the strategies? What are we going to do? And I tend to sort of back up the conversation to, oh, no, no, no. Before we get to what we're going to do, I want to understand this problem. What are all the possible explanations here, right, before we jump to one? And this is, this is uh, by the way, my people really don't like it when I do this because after a while, they, they, they're like, okay, here he goes again, you know, type of thing. But intellectual honesty is something that you have to be after all the time. And when things are not going well, what is the real reason? You know, I, I find that we fire a lot of sales VPs when we have product problems. That's intellectual dishonesty. It's a product problem. It's not a selling problem. Okay, but you want to sell, you want to fire the sales VP because you can't handle the fact that your product sucks. Okay, that's that's the issue. And by the way, that happens in, in venture capital all the time. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I, I think that is, uh, you know, your, your product is not selling. The first thing you do is, is go fire sales with VP. That is the most common, common thing we hear. And then when you realize, OK, that's actually not the VP, the sales VP's uh, fault is actually the whole entire organization that's not focused on the right thing. So that yeah. definitely resonates quite a bit. Um, one of the things about convictions that you need to use that also to manage your advisors and, and also your board. And you mentioned, you know, board management a little bit before. Any thoughts on on founders' relationships with their board, especially in the early days? what, yeah. How do you do that? Best practices? What is even the relationship? Yeah, so there, there's, <laughs> um, so there's a couple things here. First of all, you need to understand what the relationship is between the board and you as a CEO and, and your management team. I mean, I had a, a call, uh, the whole group of, of startup CEOs, and this one person asked me a question, and I said, yeah, I know the comp committee is imposing this whole compensation philosophy on me. And, uh, you know, how should I think about this? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why is the comp committee imposing a compensation philosophy on you? That is your purview. It is not the comp committee's job to tell you what the compensation philosophy is. So, you, you know, but in other words, you're asking the wrong question, right? Why do you allow that to happen, right? So first you need to understand, you know, what are, what are the boundaries that exist between a board, you know, and management, right? What is my job? What is their job? Let's put it in very uh, simple terms. You need to assert, you know, the full scope and measure of your role rather than surrender that to a board. And by the way, you know, in, in venture capital, there's often some very smart people sitting around the table. And if you create a vacuum, they're going to fill it, okay? And pretty soon you're sitting, and by, and by, so that leads me sort of to, to my second observation is you always lead a board, okay? You don't allow vacuums you don't go into a board meeting and go like well what do you guys think you're going to tell them what you what, what they're going to think right even if you don't know you never go in and and just ha don't have a position on what you want them to do boards need to be and want to be led and you're going to do it 
So I, I find that a lot of CEOs are not usurping the space that they have. They just don't understand, you know, what their job is. And they also don't understand how much power they really have. And they don't, they don't come to terms with that either. Uh, that's a whole other topic. It may be a little bit easier also for, for you to, to be as directive and, and to lead your board just because of the number of successes you've had. But so for someone who's, who's starting to do this and the first time doing it, um, playing that role is probably a little bit, a little bit more challenging. That's what, I'm That's what I'm telling you. This I wish I'd known this when I was a younger man. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe related related actually to that is is the whole topic of anxiety, right? Uh, with uh, how how do you how do you how do you be the right leader? How do you deal with with your board? Uh, and in one of the panels uh, yesterday, one of one of our founders said uh, very um, very concisely that entrepreneurship is this balance of paranoia and optimism, and you're just all alone in your journey. Um, uh, yeah. and, and you also talked about anxiety earlier in this talk, which is that you're still anxious every single day. You're still scared. You, you don't want to be killed by the competition. So how, how do you deal with this anxiety yourself? You know, um, I embrace it. And I tell people to do the same thing. Don't, don't feel like it's in a natural state that, you know, it's normal. Okay. And, and by the way, use it to focus and energize your actions, right? Um, because it's not going to go away. Okay. So you need to learn to, to embrace it. You need to learn to cope with it and you need to learn to use it to your advantage because it's going to fuel your, your focus, your concentration, your sharpness, right? I mean, if you're afraid, there's a reason why you're afraid. So, you know, face your demons and start dealing with them. Pretty soon you'll feel better, by the way. Because now you're acting on it as opposed to just experiencing it, um, and that's that's a good mode to be in, you know, when you're when you're 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 working it now. Um, but you know, I, I have the saying, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable um, because discomfort is the norm, and uh, it's nothing to be feared. If you're comfortable, you're either clueless or <laughs> you're not leaning in hard enough, you know, because all of us are uncomfortable. Okay, that's just the nature of things. You know, when, when you're a startup or any other company, I mean, you're trying to take business from somebody else. They're not going to take kindly to it. They're going to fight you. And the bigger you get, the harder you're going to fight, right? It's a zero-sum game, right? We can't print money like the government. we got to take it from somebody else, you know? <laughs> no, that, uh, that, that makes sense. And, and speaking of which, I know many of our audience wants to, wants to talk about the data landscape just a little bit. Um, uh, and, and I want to uh, maybe maybe touch upon a few things. Uh, Snowflake has has dramatically redefined the data warehousing market, right? Taking a more contrarian perspective in the early days, and you know now now it's it's growing to be you know one of the top line items for many companies, right? In yep. terms of cost, yep. um, what do you foresee as the evolution of the data landscape going forward? Well, you know, the, here's the interesting thing. Um, you, know, you look at the landscape, right? We have these massive infrastructure clouds in AWS and Azure and, and Google Cloud and so on. And we have hundreds, and, if not thousands, of application clouds in terms of the SaaS companies. And then you look at data, and data is fragmented uh, into a million places, right? It lives inside these app clouds. It lives inside all these cloud regions. It lives on premise. Um, is that a problem? Yeah, it's a huge problem. Okay, because, and that's the reason why we, we've had data warehouses to begin with, because people are trying to combine and blend and overlay data so they can drive in a little perspective you know, across silos. 
Um, but of course, data warehouses have just massively, you know, failed because the scale wasn't there, the computational performance wasn't there, there was zero concurrent execution. Um, so it's it is just we, we need to get to this concept that we refer to as a data cloud. In other words, it becomes like a third class of cloud. We have infrastructure, we have data, and we have applications. Um, that that is an enormous change. Now, how do you do that? Um, you know, we have a, a completely federated data architecture. So, in other words, you know, any any Snowflake user uh, can expose data to any other Snowflake user. It doesn't have to be in the same company. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't even have to be in the same cloud. Um, so, we have the opportunity to very lightly, you know, federate and create an orbit of data that people can just plug into. And because the data is is so uh, so optimized. In other words, in terms of indexing and partitioning and structure, it becomes you know very very high octane in terms of being actionable. And one of the big changes right now in, in analytical processing is that we we are now completing processes sort of in seconds and minutes versus hours and days, and then that, that then leads to this notion of the time value of data. The data is far more valuable and impactful when it shows up in seconds and minutes. Than if it shows up, you know, in hours and days, right? It loses its value very quickly as as it ages. Um, and so, in, in digital enterprises that run end to end programmatically, it is super. The whole latency thing is super, super important. So we drive lower and lower latency, so that the systems can analyze and act, you know, on the data that is developing in real time uh, all the time. I mean, we used to be just running dashboards, you know, populating dashboards, running reports, you know, sort of last century type of stuff, right? I mean, the world's really changing to, uh, to data driving versus data informing. Okay, the people are not in it. Uh, of course, you know, Facebook, Google, et cetera, they, they wrote, kind of wrote the book on it. But now we have platforms like Snowflake that sort of have democratized this, you know, to for the rest of the world. Because, you know, you, you can show up with, you know, one man, a dog, and a, and a handful of files and, no contract, uh, you know, no commitments. You, you can just get going, right? So the, the market just expands as a function of, of how easy it is and how economically affordable it is. You get charged for what you use. That's the utility model. Absolutely. And I think this also speaks to just the market opportunity and market size, right? Uh, Snowflake's market cap today is bigger than the TAM that you cite in your S1. I think this this some some of this is is because of the opportunities that that is yet to come, you know, as different layers of the stacks are decoupled and reassembled, as machine learning and AI workloads are changing everything, um, and and some of the trends that you talked about that data is accessed by everybody regardless of your role in the organization, easily and quickly and hopefully cheaply. Um, so super excited! If you're a startup founder. Uh, where would you see as the next set of opportunities? Well, you know, obviously, where, where there is an enormous, uh, you know, opportunity is in the value-added processing of data. Because once data becomes so ubiquitous, you know, through the notion of a data cloud, now it opens up the opportunity for for software companies to do value-added processing. Because we're, we're we are really trying to create a marketplace around what we call data services. Data services is really the ability to just read data out. Bring your unique value added to, uh, to bear on it and then write the results back. Think about medical images, for example, as MRI or scans or whatever. In other words, I, I, I read those out. I'm, I'm using uh, machine learning models to interpret, uh, to scan and interpret that data. 
And then I give the radiologist a much higher level view. And I might combine that with clinical data. Now I have an even bigger context for advising the person that has to, to read these, these scans, right? The same thing, you know, image processing, you know, in other words, uh, you know, facial recognition, these type of deep learning processes. So the ability to do value-added processing on data is going to be an enormous industry. And, and as, 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 as users, I don't want to develop those things. I just want to use them, right? I mean, Google has these, these services for that can detect the, uh, the emotional content of a support ticket. Is somebody really pissed or are they kind of cool or what? Because mm-hmm. they parse the language and they parse the intonation. And they, they can give you a score back. It's like, well, this person is kind of hot under color based on the language that we parsed. Uh, therefore, you know, that needs to be uh, viewed as a Ceph one or whatever. Uh, but the fact that I can actually send the message there and get a score back, uh, you know, that is very, very specialized, very optimized and experience uh, based is very valuable, right? Because otherwise a person has to talk to somebody and, and assess that live, right? So I'm just giving you examples here, but the richness of this palette is just enormous. And we think data service is going to be a huge thing. And the same thing, you know, when you have an application that has a complicated log file, I don't have the skills to, in, to interpret that log file, but I just send it out, proof, and I get it back in two seconds, and it tells me what, what I need to know, you know? Absolutely. I think you know, one of the things that we love to say here at Foundation is that now that every single software company has become a data company or will become a data company, what is the next set of applications of services that you build on top to actually bring value to the user, you know, not just the engineer or the person who's who's diagnosing and, and looking for this. Yeah, what's, what's uh, really important here, Joanne, is that you know, pretty soon when you're looking at data, you're actually not looking at data, you're looking at the data service. And the difference is it's actually data that's processed. Yep. You just get data, so you think you think of it as data, but it's actually then you know value processed in the pro- you know while you were accessing it. Absolutely. Uh, any last tips, advice, thoughts for entrepreneurs who are hopefully one day going to build a snowflake just like you have? It's really hard to, to, to come into a market and, and make your way. And people sometimes think, well, I'm a little bit better. And by the way, just because you're a founder and you can sell it doesn't mean that the average Joe salesperson, you know, on a street corner in Minneapolis can also sell it. Okay. And that's the problem, right? You see founders are able to sell it because they're very smart, very articulate. And then you sell a handful of customers, but then, you know, you can't scale it because it's too hard, right? So you, you, you need to work it towards the lowest common denominator where the most average person in the world can sell. Now you're on to something. Now it's the, the, I call it lightning in a bottle. People need to come across the table. and want to sort of take your left arm off to get access to what you just did. All right. And you, you have that you have a fighting chance of having something really, really good. I, I like that a lot and really enjoy this chat. Uh, so 10x product, having high conviction, dealing with anxiety, and couple that with a focus, velocity, and urgency, and, and perhaps you'll have a chance of building a snowflake just like Frank has. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. B2B as CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, Tube Mogul, and Sunrun. I'm Ashur Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks 
and see you next time.